Good morning. We are officially, I must make this announcement, two-thirds of the way through the Gospel of Luke. Two-thirds of the way. Man, we've, we've, we're getting there. Final, final stretch here. As I open up this morning, I think about the fact that I love war movies. Anybody else? Anybody else love war movies? Good, good. I'm in good company here. I, uh, I remember the very first war movie that I saw. Um, it was the first rated R movie that I ever saw. A little bit dated at this point. I know, don't judge me. Abby, I see you. It was Saving Private Ryan. I saw it like in, it was like sixth grade. It's known for its, um, it's known for just how gory and violent it is as, as it talks about this, this scene here in World War II as, as U.S. forces are storming the beaches there. And, and um, the thing that's amazing, it's apparently it's a true story. And it's a, it's a story that, that took place uh, in a time where, um, in World War II, where you know, U.S. soldiers were, were drafted and, and they, were, they were taken from their lives and, and they put right into battle into, you know, the most violent war that the world's ever seen. And, um, and so you'd have a, a mom who, who had four sons that were sent right into battle. And at the very beginning of Saving Private Ryan, you see that, there's, that, that three of, of these Ryan brothers were, were supposedly confirmed to be killed in the war. And there was one Ryan brother, this private, who the movie's named after, Saving Private Ryan, who apparently was still alive, but they could not find him. They didn't know if he was alive. They didn't know if he was dead. They thought he was alive. But there was an initiative by the U.S. government that, that, they, uh, that, that had taken place during that time where um, they would not want a family to lose all of their children. And so they would, at that point, seek to bring that that family member back home. So a mom had lost three of her four children. And there was this one private, this unimportant private, the lowest ranking that you can get, possibly, you know, in the military, the private. He, he, he was out there somewhere and he needed to be found. Which is interesting because Tom Hanks, who's the main character in this movie, he's, he's kind of the leader of this platoon here and he gets word that, that he says... Hey, I know you've just stormed the beaches of Normandy here. We need you to go find this private. And the platoon there is like, are you kidding me? Of all that we've just done, and all there is to do, all, all, that, all that we see, you're telling us our mission is to go find this insignificant private and bring him home to safety. Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? That this important platoon just faced a major battle would go find this unimportant private. Well, that's the story of a rescue mission. And it reminds me of a rescue mission that we will talk about this morning. Where our Savior, Jesus Christ, he goes through this large crowd who was enamored by him. They wanted to see him. They wanted to, they wanted to talk to him. They wanted to see if he was worth the hype. He bypasses all the crowd. All the crowd. To go seek out one insignificant tax collector named Zacchaeus. That is what our story is about this morning. Please turn your Bibles to Luke 19, 1 through 10. Luke 19, 1 through 10. My main point this morning is this. Jesus saves us and changes us by seeking after us and revealing himself to us. Jesus saves us and changes us by seeking after us and revealing himself to us. Please follow along this morning as I read in Luke 19, 1 through 10. He, he being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. 
But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, they being the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Main point, Jesus saves us and changes us by seeking after us and revealing himself to us. Point one this morning. Jesus, Jesus doesn't invite us simply to see him from a distance but to intimately know him. Jesus doesn't invite us to simply see him from a distance, but to intimately know him. In verse 1, we we notice that Jesus, he enters into Jericho. In fact, the text says that Jesus was simply passing through. He was passing through Jericho. However, we know this church from the Gospels that Jesus is never, ever simply just passing through. We know from chapter 18 that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem in order to lay down his life on the cross for his bride. But before he arrived, Jesus travels through Jericho on a rescue mission. Now when one, when one mentions Jericho, perhaps many things come to mind from a, from a biblical perspective, we, we can go back to the Old Testament and think of the story of Jericho. It, it, it is indeed an important historical location in Israel's history. However, what is perhaps most appropriate to consider uh, this morning is the state um, and significance of Jericho at the time of Jesus. The most relevant fact concerning the geographical and socioeconomic status of Jericho as it pertains to the story of Zacchaeus is that Jericho was a large tax-gathering hub for the Roman Empire. Not only that, but Jericho was a rather wealthy city because of how close it was to the Jordan River and because of its proximity to Jerusalem. In a wealthy area like Jericho, we can only imagine how abundant the tax revenues were. If tax collectors made their income by skimming certain percentages off of the top of the taxes paid by citizens, you can imagine how wealthy you could get if you were involved in the tax-collecting business. And it's at this point we see that the text introduces us to a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector, church. He was a chief tax collector. He was in charge of the whole tax collecting operation in Jericho. And if you're wondering if he was paid handsomely for his efforts at tax collecting, friends, you do not have to guess, for the text tells us that Zacchaeus was wealthy. This guy, in fact, was loaded. As a chief tax collector, he didn't simply make a handsome salary from Rome. He made his money by charging exorbitant taxes over and above what Rome actually required from its citizens. Tax collectors were known to be dishonest and greedy and hated by everyone that knew them. Zacchaeus was no different than the rest. He was a sinful man in need of God's grace. However, the one glaring description of Zacchaeus that Luke provides that everyone tends to remember is that he was short. In fact, throughout much of church history, many bright biblical scholars have described Zacchaeus as a wee little man. 
while Zacchaeus' height may not have prevented him from gaining a fortune, we find a scenario where his height was prohibitive in his ability to see Jesus. As Pat talked about last week, crowds were clamoring to see Jesus before he entered Jericho. And now as Jesus formally enters Jericho, the crowds have only gotten larger. In fact, in just a few weeks, we're going to encounter more crowds as Jesus enters Jerusalem. At this point, Jesus, our Savior, with the crowds, had a rock star type status. People were intrigued by his ability to heal, cast out demons, feed the poor, and even his ability to preach with such authority. We must understand that while Jesus ministered to the crowds, Jesus never commended the crowds at large for their faith. He never highlighted their holiness or their salvation or their obedience or their love for God. Of course, there are individuals in the crowds that Jesus commends. For instance, last week we saw the blind man who could not even see the crowds, but could see, comprehend, and treasure that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. As the blind man persistently called for the son of David to heal him, Jesus obliged and commended this man for his faith. We can also consider the leper that Jesus healed in Luke 17. We might recall that Jesus healed a total of 10 lepers, yet only one of the 10 came back praising Christ with worship and gratitude. Jesus commends the man among the small crowd for his faith. In fact, he says to that leper who came back, your faith has saved you. We might ask, why does Jesus commend individuals in the crowds, but never commends the crowds as a whole? Because by and large, the crowds were only intrigued by Jesus. The crowds were only intrigued by Jesus. They came to Jesus for a variety of reasons. They, they heard he could help meet a need in their life, so they sought his help. They found his teaching intellectually stimulating, so they obliged to listen. They heard of the reputation of this miracle-working rabbi and desired to get a glimpse of him to see if he was worth the hype. In fact, the crowds are no different than many in our culture today. They find the teachings of Jesus interesting. They think that adding a little Jesus to their lives could prove beneficial. Perhaps they even like having around other people that love Jesus because they provide a significant friendship base for them. This brings to mind a, a time where I once sought to see the presidents of the United States a few years back. Since the state of Georgia has now become more of a swing state from a political perspective, we have the honor and burden of hosting the president of the United States in our great state quite frequently. Once we had one of the presidents drive through downtown Atlanta. Everyone knew exactly where the president would drive and what time his motorcade would arrive on the scene. So a few minutes before the motorcade was scheduled to drive by, dozens of people such as myself gathered on a bridge overlooking I-85 in Midtown to watch as the president drove by. Interesting enough, I had no strong affections for this president. None. No strong affections for this president. In fact, I had very little authentic respect for the man. However, when you get a chance to see the leader of the free world drive through your city with all the pomp and circumstance, you walk a half mile down the road to get a glimpse. You see it. I sat there and watched the president pass by with great excitement the same time, with no intent on actually supporting the man. None at all. No affection for the man, no excitement for the man, just excited to see a president. The way that I sought to see that president reminds me of the way that the crowd sought to see rock star Jesus. It is very possible to be intrigued by something and not absolutely gripped by it. 
The crowds were intrigued by Jesus enough to see to gather to see him. However, they were not gripped by his glory, awed by his holiness, fearful of his power, or even moved by his compassion. They just wanted to get a glimpse of the man that all the citizens in the surrounding regions were buzzing about. They were simply intrigued. Friends, we must not mistake intrigue for Jesus as faith in Jesus. We must not mistake intrigue for Jesus, interest in Jesus, for faith in Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for people who simply find Jesus interesting. Jesus is looking for people who leave everything in this world and everything it has to offer to follow him. This is a result of a deep affection for Jesus. This is a result of a desire to worship Jesus and see him as he truly is. This, this is the kind of faith that Jesus commends. However, this is not the type of heart posture that existed in the intrigued crowds. One of those figures in the crowd was Zacchaeus. The text tells us that he sought to see who Jesus was. You see that? He sought to see who Jesus was. Many pastors, when preaching this passage of Scripture, attempt to highlight Zacchaeus' faith here. However, Zacchaeus' faith is never mentioned in these first few verses. In fact, it doesn't appear that Zacchaeus even knew who Jesus was. The verse doesn't say that Zacchaeus simply wanted to see Jesus. You see that? It's a difference. I knew who he was and I just desired to see him. It doesn't say that. The verse says that he wanted to see who Jesus was. Based on all we can tell from the text, Zacchaeus was intrigued by the celebrity named Jesus that he had heard about and desired to see him just like the rest of the crowds. However, Zacchaeus struggled to see Jesus because the crowds were so great and he was so short. Yet Zacchaeus was a wealthy businessman. He was used to setbacks. He wasn't going to let a small detail like his height keep him from seeing this rock star. As the crowds are pressing in on Jesus and people are running towards him from every direction, Zacchaeus has the bright idea of running away from Jesus to try and get a spot downstream from the parade route. His thought is, Jesus will certainly pass this way, and I'll be in the perfect position to see who Jesus is. In fact, when he finally gets to his spot, he finds a, a nice sycamore fig tree, and he decides to climb the tree. Of course, we know the song. He climbs up in that sycamore tree. You see, Zacchaeus' plan at this point, it seemed fail-proof didn't it? He had a good seat. He might have even snacked on a few figs while he, he sat there and he waited for the parade to pass by. He probably had no intention of ever speaking to Jesus. The text tells us that he simply wanted to see who Jesus was. And his position in the sycamore tree allowed him that privilege. And as Zacchaeus sits in the tree, Jesus finally begins to approach and the crowds are following along with him, and we can imagine that the scene was quite chaotic. It was loud, and, and the disciples were probably trying to make room for Jesus to simply walk. And we already know that the disciples could be quite antagonistic towards the crowds. Zacchaeus probably just wanted to watch the scene with great interest. But this giant, as this, this giant mob, it inches its way closer to the sycamore tree until basically this mob with Jesus right in the center is right underneath where Zacchaeus is sitting. Then the crowd stops and it gets quiet. And Zacchaeus, at that point, as he's sitting in that sycamore tree, watching the crowds, eating his fig, he hears his name called. And as Zacchaeus looks directly below that tree, he sees that the man calling his name was none other than the rock star he was looking for in the first place. You can imagine what might have been going through Zacchaeus' mind at that very moment. As we just considered, tax collectors were notorious sinners. 
They were disliked with a passion. And, they, and, and in fact, they earned that reputation. They were hated, and they deserved to be hated. They earned it. Zacchaeus was probably thinking, how does this guy know my name? I've never even seen him before. Next, he was probably worried that this moral teacher was going to do nothing but chastise him for his life decisions right in front of this giant crowd. This was not the type of scenario that Zacchaeus had planned for. Yet, Jesus doesn't chastise or criticize Zacchaeus. Instead, this celebrity that everyone in the city of Jericho desired to see and interact with was calling his name. Not only that, Jesus shouted for Zacchaeus to get out of the tree. He said, Zacchaeus, get on down from that tree. Climb down. And he invited him for fellowship with Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't wait for an invitation, but invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house to stay for the night. You see this, church? Zacchaeus was, was seeking to simply see who Jesus was. However, Jesus was actually seeking out Zacchaeus to reveal himself to him for the purpose of fellowship with him. At this point, Jesus doesn't commend Zacchaeus' faith. He doesn't approve of his life decisions. He simply invites Zacchaeus to spend the day with him for the purpose of friendship and fellowship. Now, it's been said countless times throughout the book of Luke that dining with someone or staying in someone's home in that culture was basically like identifying with them. It was as if you're going to say, these people that I'm dining with, these people that I'm staying with, these people that I'm going over to their house, these people are my friends. And that is why the crowd see that when Jesus was going to spend the day with Zacchaeus at his home, there was outrage. Outrage. They were grumbling. In fact, the text tells us that the crowds grumbled and complained that he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They were making a moral judgment about Jesus and about Zacchaeus. It wasn't just that the crowds were jealous that Jesus picked one man in the crowd to spend the time with and neglected everyone else. That wasn't it. They actually were shocked that Jesus would spend time with such a vile, wretched sinner, like a tax collector. And therefore, they grumbled at Jesus. When I was growing up, I, I had a very godly male influence in my life named Stephen Kendrick. He was my middle school youth minister. And I praise God for people who pour into the life of youth. I think about our middle school leaders, uh, Stephen and Jennifer Conti. Praise God for um, the ways that you serve our church in that capacity. I benefit, my kids benefit, our church benefits. Thank you for, for godly youth leaders like you guys. Well, similar to our community Bible church middle school group, the youth group that I was a part of in middle school would also go to church camp. We would have worship services, eat good foods, and stay up late. However, the part of church camp that, was, um, that most of the young middle school boys, such as me, looked forward to the most was recreation. And all the young boys said, Amen. One of the things that the students appreciated about Stephen Kendrick, my youth minister, was that he would often participate in all the games and recreation with us. In fact, he would often be a captain for one of the teams if we played manhunt, capture the flag, or some other team activity. However, when Stephen was a captain, he would always frustrate most of the young men eager to participate in the activities because he would consciously and consistently pick the students who were the least athletic and the most likely to be picked last first. He was the captain, and he picked the worst people first. To a young middle school boy, that produced great outrage. Those of us who were used to being picked in the earlier rounds would sit there rolling our eyes and frustrated. We would think sanctified thoughts like, how is Stephen picking that kid? Doesn't he know that that kid can't run for like 15 yards before cramping up? This is ridiculous. We were clearly teenagers grumbling at a man making godly decisions, such as showing love, grace, and compassion to those that needed it. However, Stephen didn't care what we thought. He showed us what it looked like to minister to the least of these. 
Jesus didn't care what the crowds thought here either. In fact, Jesus has never, ever been concerned with what the crowds thought. Not once. This is the heart of our Savior. He walks into the room and bypasses all of the clean, moral, conservative, nice, popular, and beloved people and heads straight to the downcast. He heads straight to the hurting and straight to the broken. He seeks to spend time with those that are vile and they know it. As Pat mentioned last week as as he brought out 1 Corinthians 1.28, it tells us this, that God chose. God made the conscious decision. From the heart of God, he made the conscious decision to choose what is low and what is despised in the world. Friends, Scripture doesn't give us much of a clearer picture of what it meant to be low and despised in this world than being a tax collector in the first century. It doesn't get more low and despised than that. You can imagine that tax collectors had very few friends. When they went out in public, they were likely shunned. They lacked intimate relationships because their corrupt lifestyles led to a very isolated life. Yet, in spite of such realities, Jesus pursued a low and despised man like Zacchaeus. And we can see in verse 6 that Zacchaeus hopped out of that tree immediately. Jesus and his, and his, and his group, they, they, they find their way under that tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, get out. And ultimately, Zacchaeus, he responds. He gets out immediately. In fact, it tells us that Zacchaeus received Jesus with great joy. You see, it's not hard to understand why Zacchaeus would receive Jesus with such joy. As someone who was despised, it was highly unlikely that he was ever singled out in the crowd for something positive. Jesus' compassion led to true joy in Jesus' heart. Even in spite of all the ridicule and grumbling that Zacchaeus likely heard from the crowd, he received Jesus with joy. You see, Jesus wasn't there to chastise him. Jesus wasn't there to embarrass him. Jesus also wasn't there to simply have a good meal and enjoy a few laughs, church. Jesus was there to save him. Jesus was there on a rescue mission. See, this is very similar to what Jesus told the Pharisees who grumbled at Jesus for eating with another tax collector and other sinners in Luke chapter 5. Jesus responded to the self-righteous Pharisees by telling them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come to be nice to sinners and tax collectors. That's not why he came. I didn't just come to be nice. He didn't come to befriend the sinners and ignore their sin. From his own mouth, Jesus tells us that he came to call sinners to repentance. And this is exactly what he is doing here with Zacchaeus. He is on a rescue mission to pursue Zacchaeus and call Zacchaeus to repentance. How will he do this? How will he accomplish this? How will he bring Zacchaeus to repentance? How will he bring Zacchaeus to faith? By letting Zacchaeus see him from a distance? No. By intimately revealing himself to Zacchaeus. Friends, this is God's desire for you as well. Understand that. God's desire for you is not simply to know a lot about Jesus from a distance. God's desire is not for you to study and dissect him like you would a lab rat. God's desire for you is to have fellowship with him. God's desire for you is to find joy in him. God's desire for you is to truly experience his loving kindness and his presence in your life. We do not serve some distant God or some impersonal force who just exists out there somewhere. We serve a God who has made himself known to us through his word. And today, through the preaching of the word, God is speaking to us for the purpose of equipping us, encouraging us, convicting us, rebuking us, strengthening us, and giving us joy in Christ. 
God's true desire for us is that we would know Him in a more intimate way and love Him more deeply. As I was reading a few days ago, uh, in a book by Herman Bavink, uh, The Wonderful Works of God, if, if you're looking for something new to read, and, and I think he, he made a point that, that captures what, what Jesus' desire is for us. He writes this, The prophets and apostles and the saints generally who appear before us in the Old and New Testament and later in the Church of Christ. Saints of the past, basically. Did not sit and philosophize about God in abstracted concepts, but rather confessed what God meant to them and what they owed to Him in all the circumstances of life. God was for them, not at all a cold concept, which they then proceeded rationally to analyze. But he was a living, personal force, a reality infinitely more real than the world around him. Indeed, he was to them the one eternal, worshipful being. They reckoned with him in their lives. They lived in his tent, walked as if always before his face, served him in his courts, and worshipped him in his sanctuary. The genuineness and depth of their experience comes to expression in the language they use to express what God meant to them. They did not have to strain for words, for their lips overflowed with what welled up out of their hearts. And the world of man and nature supplied them with figures of speech. God was to them as a king, a lord, a valiant one, a leader, a shepherd, a savior, a redeemer, a helper, a physician, a man, and a father. All their bliss and well-being, their truth and righteousness, their life and mercy, their strength and power, their peace and rest, they found in him. That's Christ's desire for you. Is it all your hope, all your joy, all your peace, all your happiness, all your worth, Everything would be found in Christ as a result of an intimate relationship with Him. Jesus' desire for you is not just for Him to be an academic exercise to stimulate your imagination. He desires to know you, to change you. Which brings us to point two. Point two, when we truly know Jesus, talking about after He has sought us out, Revealed himself to us intimately. Point two, when we truly know Jesus, we are never left the same. When we truly know Jesus, we are never left the same. In verses six and seven, we see that Jesus heads over to Zacchaeus' home. We know that the crowds grumbled while Jesus spent time with Zacchaeus. However, the text doesn't explicitly tell us what happened at Zacchaeus' home. We don't know what Jesus said. We don't know what questions Zacchaeus might have had. Luke doesn't give us any of the details in this encounter. However, we've read enough about Jesus' encounters with such people in the Gospel of Luke thus far to likely understand what Jesus probably said to Zacchaeus. We might recall in Luke 18 where Jesus encounters another rich man who questioned Jesus regarding how he could inherit eternal life. Jesus told the man that he needed to repent of his idolatrous love of money and follow Jesus. Unfortunately, the rich young ruler left sad because he loved his sin too much. We might also recall the parable about the self-righteous Pharisee and the truly righteous tax collector, also in Luke 18. In this parable, we find that Jesus commends the tax collector who humbles himself before God, repents of his sin, and desires the righteousness and mercy that only God can provide. More than likely, Jesus' disciples followed him to Zacchaeus' home. Among them would have been Levi. Perhaps you remember Levi from Luke 5, where Jesus calls him out of the tax collecting business to follow him. Perhaps Levi sat alongside Jesus and spoke to Zacchaeus about his former life of sin and the joys of now following Jesus and living for the kingdom of God. Again, 
we can only speculate the particulars of what was said during the encounter. However, Jesus has been extremely consistent in his messages to sinners throughout the Gospel of Luke. And, it, and his time with Zacchaeus wasn't any different. As Jesus spent time with Zacchaeus and revealed himself to Zacchaeus, Jesus calls Zacchaeus to repentance and to follow him. That was his message. The only details, the only details we have from Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus is the fruit that comes as a result of his time with Jesus. But we know this. As Zacchaeus began to know Christ, he was not the same man. As Zacchaeus began to know Christ, he was not the same man. And if you know Jesus, you know that is the same for you as well. As you begin to know Jesus, you're not the same student. You're not the same son, daughter, grandfather, businessman, husband, period, person. As Zacchaeus began to know Christ, he was not the same man. As Zacchaeus leaves his house and steps back out into public, he is radically different. He's a radically different man. And there are two attributes that I want us to consider in the life of Zacchaeus that point to a life that truly knows Christ. These are attributes that are universally true of all true born-again Christians. To say it another way, what does it look like when someone becomes a Christian? How would you describe it? Based on the life of Zacchaeus, and the many others who have found faith in Christ in the Gospel of Luke so far, we know that knowing Christ as Savior, listen, we know this, that knowing Christ as Savior involves a change in affection and a change in direction. That knowing Christ as Savior involves a change in affection and a change in direction. In your notes, you might have written down as a change number one. Let's consider the first one. A change in affection. A change in affection. Let's quickly see how Christ involves a change. That Knowing Christ involves a change in affection. As Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, he, he leaves the encounter by saying, Behold, Lord. Behold, Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor. This church this is, is simply amazing to me. This is amazing to me what, what happens right here. A few hours earlier, Zacchaeus was at his booth, scheming up his next pursuit to defraud his neighbor in order to pursue his first love in life, money. We know that from the text that this was likely how every minute of every hour of his life looked because he was very, very wealthy. He pursued self-glory and comfort with reckless abandon. Can you imagine, church, all of the years that he gave to this reckless pursuit? Can you imagine the countless interactions with taxpayers who walked away from his booth, gritting their teeth because of the injustice they experienced at the hands of Zacchaeus? Perhaps Zacchaeus knew initially what he was doing was corrupt. You see, it doesn't take a born-again follower of Jesus to know that stealing is wrong. Yet, his heart continued to become more and more hardened to his sin over the years to the point that he was consumed by it. He likely tried to rationalize his sin. He likely tried to make excuses for it. The more he sinned, the more he got what his carnal heart wanted. The more he got what his heart, carnal heart wanted, the more carnage there was left in his wake. The social consequences of his sin were great, not just for him, but for those around him. Yet, he still didn't care because he received his idol, money. Did not care. Kept pursuing it. However, however, after Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, he looks at all the wealth that he has built up and he says this. He says, I am going to cut my net worth which happens to be a whole lot, in half, immediately, and give it to the poor. 
don't know if that amazes you. Hours before, he's scheming to get all he can. He encounters Jesus. And in one evening, he's cutting his net worth in half. Not investing it in earthly goods. He's giving it to the poor. This is, this is astonishing. Do you see what happened here? Zacchaeus doesn't say this. He doesn't say, well, I've made enough. I've got enough in savings. And you know, it's, it's, finally, it's time to finally stop sinning. So, from this point forward, as I you know, can live off all these things that I've stolen for the past several decades... I've got enough, and that's, you know, from this point forward, half of what I make is going to give, I'm going to give it to the poor. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that. No. Zacchaeus says this, he says, I'm going to look at everything I have ever made, everything sitting in that barn, everything, all this unrighteous wealth that I've gained, that I've consumed, I'm going to take half of it and give it to the poor. In one evening, church, with Jesus, his life is turned completely around. His pursuit wasn't about consumption, but about generosity. Not just generosity, but radical, grace-based generosity. He wasn't following the law here. There was nowhere in the law that tells a rich person that he had to give 50% of his net worth to the poor. Something happened in that house that day. What would cause a man... To do such a thing? What would cause such radical behavior? What happened to Zacchaeus? Well, the deepest object of his heart's affections changed. No longer did he love money. He loved Jesus. And as Jesus spent time with him and shared the good news of the kingdom with him, Zacchaeus couldn't help but respond with joy and affection for Christ. Like every Christian who has ever lived, Zacchaeus had been given eyes to see Jesus for who he really was. He had been given a heart that responded positively to the gospel. And when he finally met his Savior, he found all his heart ever wanted and ever needed. Because he loved the Lord, he loved the things the Lord loved. What did Jesus love? Jesus loved the poor and the outcast. Immediately, Zacchaeus, because of the grace he received from Christ and out of a desire to honor Christ, he joyfully gave half of everything that he had to the poor. Zacchaeus didn't ask, how much do I need to give in order to satisfy the law? What is the bare minimum I can give to make things right with God and be a good Christian? He didn't ask such questions. Instead, Zacchaeus said, everything I have is Christ. It's all his. Why? Because his primary concern was now the kingdom of God. Why? Because he now loved the king. Why? Because his affections changed. At the very heart of salvation is a change in affection. But also, change number two, a change in direction. A change in direction. Not only does following Christ involve a change in affection, it also involves a change in direction. As Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, he no longer wants to follow the sinful ways of his past. He no longer desires to lie, cheat, and steal. He no longer desires to defraud his neighbor. In fact, he desired to actively pursue righteousness. This was evidenced by the commitment to make a fourfold restitution to anyone he defrauded. You see, the law in Exodus 20, uh, 22 called for various types of restitution if one robbed from another. There are, there are different levels of restitution depending on the object stolen and how you stole it. The restitution could be anywhere from punishment by death or enslavement or paying back anywhere from one to five times what you stole. So as a result of the Holy Spirit's work on his heart, he began to find the people he wronged and sought to make it right. He didn't do this out of guilt. He didn't do this out of shame. 
or manipulation or in order to be found right with the Lord. He actually desired to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness. He wouldn't just say, well, I I couldn't possibly go back and find all these people that I've wronged. That's that's water under the bridge. I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ignore it. Doesn't matter. I'm sure that that giving up 50% of my net worth is sufficient to make God happy. You know, I'm just gonna be a better steward of my money from this point forward. Those people I've wronged in the past, they, they, they don't matter. No! Zacchaeus hated his sin. You see that? He hated it. He was deeply convicted that he wronged his neighbors. And out of his new love for righteousness, he pursued reconciliation with his neighbors. Friends, I recall a time in my life where the Lord convicted me of past sin. It wasn't necessarily egregious from the world's standpoint. But the Lord convicted me of being prideful and arrogant towards many people. It wasn't a result of some podcast a dynamic conference, or an accountability group. Through the steady study of God's word, he convicted me of the way I treated different people in the past. I dishonored the name of the Lord, and I had a deep desire to make it right. You see, most of these people were no longer in my life, so I could only contact them via email or via Facebook Messenger. But I did it. I confessed my sin, and I sought their forgiveness. By God's grace, all of them were gracious to forgive me. I don't share this story to highlight my own goodness by any stretch of the imagination. I've heard stories from others in this congregation that are very similar. There's clearly absolutely nothing special about me. However, I was extremely grateful that God worked in my heart and revealed sin such as pride and arrogance. I share the story with you to encourage you to not allow unconfessed sin to harden your heart. If the Lord has convicted you of something that you need to make right, friend, church, respond in obedience. It honors the Lord, and the weight lifted off of your shoulders feels like cool water on a hot day. See, only the Lord can truly change our affection and our direction. This change in affection and direction is what we call repentance. When Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, this is what Jesus had in mind. He didn't call them to simply do a bunch of good works in order for them to be saved. Granted, good works would come. Jesus was calling for a change in affection, for their hearts to turn from being hostile towards God to loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus was calling for a change in direction, for their lives to no longer be about the pursuit of sin, but about the pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom and the righteousness that he offers. Friends, this is what a Christian is. Finding your joy, desire, happiness, and hope in Jesus alone. He changes everything about you. He changes everything about you. Not one thing, not a few things. Jesus changes everything in you. If this is true, it it should probably lead to some introspection for us in application church. Does your relationship with Jesus change the way that you spend your money? Does your relationship with Jesus change what you watch on Netflix? Does your relationship with Jesus actually change the way you spend your time? Does your relationship with Jesus change the things you say or don't say? Does your relationship with Jesus change your effort in the workplace or at school? Does your relationship with Jesus change the way you date and the things you do when no one is looking? Does your relationship with Jesus change your search history on your phone or computer? Does your relationship with Jesus change your retirement plans? A question for consideration for us, church, this week. If we agree that Jesus changes everything about us, what has he changed in you? How is he changing you? Brings us to point three. 
Everything. Point three. Everything we know and love about Jesus is not a result of our pursuit of him, but his pursuit of us. Everything we know and love about Jesus is not a result of our pursuit of him, but his pursuit of us. As Jesus sees Zacchaeus' heart, Jesus joyfully proclaims that salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. You see, Zacchaeus' conversion was a picture-perfect example of what coming to Christ looks like. He ultimately found his joy, hope, and worth in Jesus alone, and his life began to look like it. Then he roots his salvation in the fact that Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham. This is nothing more than a different way of saying that Zacchaeus had true faith in God like Abraham. You see, the scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Many Jews in that time thought they were true sons of Abraham simply, solely, because of their ethnicity. They could not have been more mistaken. While there indeed does come a day when all of Israel will be saved according to Romans 11, they will only be saved by becoming true sons of Abraham. They will believe God by trusting in his son Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. This is what it meant to be a son of Abraham, to have true faith in God. You see, this point couldn't be more obvious in Scripture. In John 6, 39-47, the Pharisees try to appeal to the fact that they are sons of Abraham, but Jesus tells them that they're nothing like sons of Abraham because they didn't trust in Christ. In fact, he tells them that they are like their father, Satan. In Galatians 3, 23-29, Paul points out that, that those who are in Christ are truly Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Paul says it most explicitly in Romans 2, 28-29, when he writes, A person is not a Jew who is, only, who is uh, one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Isn't that amazing? They weren't a true son of Abraham unless they were circumcised by the Spirit. That's what Romans 2.29 says. In order for you to be a son of Abraham, you need God to move. You need God to work. You need God to change you. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at when he says, For, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That is, that is what he's, he's getting at here. By beginning that sentence with the word for, it is as if Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, you have been saved. Do you want to know why? Because you are a son of Abraham. Do you want to know why you are a true son of Abraham? Because I, the Lord Jesus Christ, made the sovereign choice to seek you out and save you. You see, the ultimate point of the story, Community Bible Church, the ultimate point of the story of Zacchaeus isn't about a man who climbs up into a sycamore tree. It's not about that. The ultimate point of the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus isn't to highlight Zacchaeus' faith to climb into a sycamore tree. The point of the story was to highlight Jesus' pursuit of unworthy and incapable sinners. Jesus invited Zacchaeus to climb down of that tree to know him intimately. And as Zacchaeus spent time with Christ, he was changed forever as he came to know Jesus as Savior. Jesus rejoiced over the sinner who found life in Christ. And it wouldn't be long before Jesus was the one being put in a tree to bear the weight of the sins of Zacchaeus and all of those who the Father 
gave the Son. Friends, Jesus was in Jericho on a rescue mission. We must understand that Jesus wasn't attempting to save Zacchaeus. Jesus called his shot, walked into Jericho, and did what he intended to do. That's exactly what our Savior does every time. Jesus does not try to save people. Jesus doesn't try to change people. Jesus does whatever he pleases. Jesus sovereignly rescues all whom the Father has given him. Jesus changes everyone that he saves without fail. They all repent. They all trust in Christ. They all walk in good works that Christ created us to walk in according to Ephesians 2. Jesus just walked into Jericho, approached Zacchaeus, and discipled him. That was Jesus' mission. And this is also the mission that he invites us to participate in church. This is the mission. What's the mission look like? That's it. That's the mission. The Christian mission, as we close, Christian mission isn't simply being nice, serving communities, or being philanthropic. Christian mission isn't simply voting the right way. Christian mission isn't simply seeking to gather as large of a crowd together as possible and calling it a success. Christian mission isn't simply being noticed or admired by the community at large. Rather, Christian mission is the passionate pursuit of the lost with the truth of the gospel that calls them to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Christian mission isn't about programs, complex strategies, dynamic leaders, or pragmatic revivalism. Rather, Christian mission is simple. We seek to create disciples by intentionally teaching the truths of Scripture to the lost and watching the Spirit of God work. Therefore, church, in order to make disciples, you must first be a disciple. You must first sit at Jesus' feet and know him through the scriptures. It is through the scriptures that we encounter the living Christ. It is through the scriptures that we taste and see that the Lord is good. It is through the scriptures that we have fellowship with God Almighty. It is through the scriptures that we hear from our Savior. It is through the scriptures that Christ reveals himself to us. And it is through the scriptures that the Holy Spirit makes us more like Christ. And what is the result of spending time feasting on the Word? What happens when the Holy Spirit comes and makes us more like Christ? What happens when we begin to find joy and happiness and hope and sustenance in Christ through the Word? We go! We go! That is what we do, church. This is the single most natural response for the Christian who has been given a new heart as the single one. Jesus, who the new heart is designed to love the most, is put before that new heart. That new heart burns with joy. That's what happens. It yearns to make much of the object of its love. It is not forced to do so. It is not guilted into doing so. It needs no strategy. It needs no spurring. It needs no manipulating. Most naturally, the heart just overflows with worship and joy and with wonder. It desires to obey and honor the one it loves the most. So, when Christians feast on the Word of God and encounter Christ... They see the call to go, and they go. They find the lost. They find them. And they tell them about Jesus. As we spend time with our Lord and, and know Him more intimately, this Christian, this, this should be our response. We love Him more deeply and desire to honor Him more abundantly. Community Bible Church, Jesus is using us. He's using us. This building, this church body. Listen, Jesus is using us to pursue the lost today by bringing the gospel to them. 
May we find real joy and excitement this week in participating in the expansion of God's kingdom as we get to watch firsthand as Christ seeks and saves the lost. He will build his church. He will save the lost. He will save, he will change the lost. He will do the work. He does this by sending out his people with the good news of the gospel. Isn't that exciting, church? Let's put our hand to the plow.